Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Egghead, sing Fair Harvard. Fair Harvard. <laughs> you, sir, have the boorish manners of a Yaley. Here's a witty rejoinder for you. Hi, everyone. This is America Daps, the climate change podcast. I am your host, Doug Parsons. On this very first episode of 2017, we have Dr. Jesse Keenan from Harvard University. Please stick around. I hope you enjoy it. everybody welcome back this is the new year 2017 this is the very first episode of the new year all right so we have an exciting schedule for january coming up on america daps i have randy olson the famous filmmaker and science communicator we're going to be talking about coral reefs and how to simplify your messaging i also have the director of adaptation at the world wildlife fund that's sean martin and i also have karen bolter who is going to she's down in south florida and she's going to come on and we're going to ground truth some sea level rise that she's been doing. Also, just a little bit of an announcement this week, and you might be hearing this after it already occurs, but on January 12th, I will be presenting to an adaptation forum that NASA hosts every couple of months. And so if you happen to be in town, or you can actually listen to that online, that I will be coming on and talking about the podcast. I'm very excited about that. I'm going to be using examples from listeners and such. And so it will be later on this week. All right. Don't forget to check out the website at americadaps.org or please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Just, you know, give them a link to the uh, iTunes link or americadaps.org website. Also, we have a community group on Facebook and just a regular Facebook page. And the community group is something that there's more interaction. You will more likely see what's appearing on that. And some of you might not want that. But if those of you who are interested in following the podcast more closely, check it out. You asked to be on it, and then I just approve it, and I've never rejected anyone. So please consider joining the community group. Also, in this episode, I talked to Beth Gibbon. She comes on very briefly to talk about this ASAP, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, which she's the managing director, and they have this adaptation award, and they're going to announce the winner at the National Adaptation Forum in May, but there's still a couple weeks left for you to nominate yourself, and that's typically what they need do here and just listen in and she'll give more details on that also the bulk of this episode i'm very excited this is really cool i I got to meet him via his interest in this podcast is dr jesse keenan from harvard university from school of architectural design and works on adaptation issues and we have just this meaty discussion on adaptation and its relevance to the national government. We talk about the movie The Big Short and how that might be relevant to adaptation planning in the future. We cover a lot of ground. It's a really interesting conversation. I try to keep up with Jesse, very smart man, but I think you'll enjoy his sort of academic worldview on this issue of adaptation. It is a packed episode, and that's how we're going to jumpstart this new year. So let's get this episode started. Hey, everybody. I have a returning podcast guest, Beth Gibbons, Managing Director of ASAP, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. Hey, Beth. Hi, Doug. Pleasure to be back with you. Well, we have a very timely thing. That's why I've invited you back on. Something very exciting is happening right now, and you're on to talk about that. What is it? Well, it is the 2017 ASAP Prize for Progress. 
So okay. We, yeah. Go on. That's all right. Go on. <laughs> oh, thank you. So the ASAP Prize for Progress is a biannual award competition that ASAP runs, and it's really designed to highlight and improve professional practice and adapting to climate change across the United States. Okay. Well, first off, people want to know, you know, specific information. What's the deadline for it? The deadline for it is January 25th. So we're coming right up on it. It's the perfect time to start thinking about it. It's a fresh piece of news and it's going to sneak right up. Okay. And so if people actually want to apply for it, do they have to be an existing member of ASAP? They do not need to be an existing member of ASAP. This is open to anybody across the adaptation community. Okay, and so they can just go to your website, and, and it won't be hidden behind anything. There'll be like some sort of link to add up to the to this board. Yes, that's right. Yep, they'll be able to find it on the front page of the website, and they won't run into any kind of barriers getting there. Barriers? <laughs> I want to call it barriers. You're running an operation there. Um, it's so the website is adaptationprofessionals.org, and I'll include a link to that on my show notes, just so if people are kind of on their phones right now, adaptationprofessionals.org, and so. You've only had one award so far, right? I mean, there's been only one winner because you're a relatively new organization. That's right. So the inaugural award was uh, in 2015. And in that case, the overall winner was the city of Baltimore for their tremendous adaptation planning efforts that have gone on there over the last several years. But we did also honor a number of runners up and we'll do something similar this year. We will have an overall winner who will be uh, receiving a registration fees paid to the National Adaptation Forum, as well as all kinds of publicity and a case study developed by ASAP on their work. But we'll also be highlighting and continuing to promote the work of a number of finalists that we consider runners-up. Well, that is a real financial like bonus there. You know, it's like I think it's five hundred dollars to go to the forum. So if you win, that that truly is a nice prize on top of the recognition of the the award. So no, I hope yeah. People- we're really excited to be able to be offering that this time around, and we hope that it'll incentivize people to compete and to send us their great work. But moreover, we really see this as an opportunity, as I said, to advance the field. And part of advancing the field in the mission of ASAP is connecting and supporting people that do this work. And so making sure that the award winner is able to be at the National Adaptation Forum is critical to achieve that mission. Okay, and so I was going over the the criteria, and a lot of times people nominate other people for awards, but I think you can do that, but the person who's or the organization that's being nominated really has to fill in a lot of information. So the people shouldn't be shy. If you're an organization or private entity who wants to be nominated, you're, you're fine nominating yourself, right? Oh, absolutely. And really, nominations are fine, but this is something that you should be going in and telling us about what you have done, or perhaps it's a project that you've been closely involved in. So if you're um, a firm, you're a consulting firm, and you've worked closely with a community, and you know that they don't have the time to put this application in, please feel free to do that. And you can be submitting the action and the activity on behalf of that community, and that would be absolutely fine. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Don't be shy to toot your own horn with this one. That's what we're looking for. Well, awards are wonderful things. It's a way of getting attention, and everyone likes an award. So uh, I think there hasn't been a lot of adaptation awards, so I'm glad to see that you guys have created one. So I guess one other thing that, you know, maybe you could include is that there is this criteria, but just, I think just to give people a sense of like, you know, it's such a broad universe of what people are doing adaptation, but you know, there are limits to what they can nominate themselves for. I mean, what, what really, what kind of project or what kind of work would they be doing that they should consider nominating themselves? 
Oh, that's a great question. So our last winners really went across the range of activities from the city of Baltimore, who was the overall winner for their work that they've done bringing together their climate adaptation planning process together with their disaster preparedness plan, together with their hazard mitigation planning. So they were really honored for being innovative in their approach to addressing these different risks facing the city. But we also had uh, runners up that did fantastic work, one case working in, through a Sea Grant program in rural communities across multiple communities in New England. We had another runner-up that was in the Gulf Coast uh, working in, I believe it was, restoration of oyster beds. And so you can see a range of activities. It's It's something that we want to be able to point to and say, here was something innovative. Here was something replicable. Here was something that advanced the adaptation field in some way. It might be a very innovative planning process. It might be the implementation of a specific piece of technology or infrastructure, um, or it, it might be a really... I don't know. I guess those are those are the two that come to mind right away. But we want to make sure that it's something that can be impactful, innovative, and replicable. Okay. And so you will... I guess, give this award at the National Adaptation Forum in May, but when do you actually announce it? Is it at the forum? Yeah, it'll be at the forum. The winner, of course, will be notified in advance so that they know that their registration is going to be covered. But the announcement will be at the forum. And so it'll be in real time on the stage when everybody finds out who the winner is and what it is that we'll be honoring and looking to for the next couple of years, driving our innovative actions. Yeah, well, I thought it was very cool that Baltimore won. Um, great city, and that I remember that they were quite proud to have won that. So, very exciting. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing who's winning this year. But uh, any other final thoughts before we check out? No. Well, I'll say the one thing. I hope people will look at this application. We've intentionally made it really accessible. The application that's due on January 25th is just a narrative. It's three simple boxes on a Google form and a limit of a thousand words. So we want to hear what you've done. We want to hear what's going on out there. We really want to capture the stories. So don't be shy. Tell your story. Tell it proudly. And, you know, don't think that this is going to take a ton of time and be very onerous to dive into. Uh, I hope that everybody will send us something and we can really see what's going on out there. Yes, I agree. Take home message. Don't be shy. Don't be bashful about bragging about what you're doing. Everyone needs to hear these stories. So. All right, Beth, on that note, thank you so much for coming on. We have Dr. Jesse Keenan from Harvard University. He's coming on, and we're going to be talking about academia, adaptation versus resilience, and all sorts of really interesting things that um, Dr. Keenan has been involved in. So thanks again, Beth. Until next time. Yep. Sounds good. Thanks, Doug. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I am your host, Doug Parsons. On today's episode, I have Professor Jesse Keenan from Harvard University's Graduate School of Design and Faculty of Architecture. Hey, Jesse, how are you? Uh, great, great. Well, it's great to have you on the show. You've listened to the podcast before. I have, I have. I listened to it on my way to work. Uh, it, uh, it helps actually walking to work. And so it's actually, a, I've, I've learned a lot uh, in the diversity of guests. And uh, in many ways, you're struggling with a lot of practical questions that are fairly representative of what I think many people in America 
uh, are trying to understand in terms of the meaning of resilience and adaptation, its applications across uh, various domains and disciplines. You know, it feels, it has a kind of banter of, of, of journalism in a way, but it's actually, it's, it's practically oriented as much of the empirical research that is out there. So, it, so I, I, for me, it's a form of entertainment, uh, listening to it, but it's also, more importantly, uh, I learn a lot. Well, that was the perfect description. It just music to my ears to know that a Harvard professor is walking long, is being entertained, but actually learns something once in a while from the podcast. I couldn't ask for anything else than that. And so you you appreciate if you've listened to it. There's a a, a tone here. You're not on an academic panel, so hopefully we'll have a, a a fun conversation, but at the same time a substantive one. So on that note, I have been hearing feedback from my listeners. Don't dilly dally. They don't know what want to know what the weather's like up in Boston. They don't want to hear what I did last week, and they want me to jump right into this conversation. So that's what we're going to do. So on that note, you are at Harvard's School of Architect and Design. I am in the Natural Resource Universe of Adaptation. So could you give a little bit of background of what Harvard is doing, especially in that program? Yeah, sure. So um, we have – I'm at the Graduate School of Design, which is made up of faculties of architecture, urban planning and design. Uh, and landscape architecture. Within that, we have specialized degree programs, one of which focuses uh, what's called in a, in a conferred degree of the Master's of Design Studies in risk and resilience. It has historically not been particularly oriented towards adaptation. It's really been oriented towards risk mitigation in a way. Um, and we can perhaps even get into that if that's useful for you and your listeners. But my work, and so then there's there's a body of research as well in architectural adaptation, uh, mostly relating to material science, uh, building management, and the technical and physical, if not engineered, uh, capacity of buildings uh, to accommodate a variety of um, uh, reoccurring incremental or extreme events relating to environmental or even user conditions. Um, so the frameworks relating to, let's say, um, natural ecology resource uh, adaptation are, are really quite similar and, and really do fall within a broader realm of ecology, at least as a theoretical positioning. Um, but there's technical aspects relating to economics, socioeconomics, and, you know, a broader array of uh, informed understandings uh, coming from social science. Um, so in a way, it's it's applied and it's normative as a design proposition, as an engineered design proposition uh, and, and relating to planning and architecture. Um, but in a way, it also has a broad range of sensitivities relating to um, people and the environment. So we're going to dig into this concept of adaptation and resilience and so the differences between the two. But I sort of imagine even some of the literature that you've shared with me that you're like this lone wolf there doing adaptation. So, I mean, are there other Harvard people that kind of get it or are you that lone wolf? So adaptation uh, science uh, is it a paradigmatic science. It's very much in the early stages, right? So the, the, the theories and the underlying sort of areas of inquiry, if not methodologies, are there's an emerging consensus. I mean, if you look at adaptation from IPCC and you work back into a European Academy, an Australian Academy, East Asian Academy, um, there's definitely an emergence of a of, of at least a methodological or, or, or sort of focus point in terms of a set of inquiries, specifically within socioeconomic adaptation. In the United States, as in many areas of climate change, we're well behind the curve. 
as it relates both intellectually and practically, uh, in, at least in comparative terms. If you look at the faculty here at Harvard, there are people doing work in both adaptation and resilience within their own disciplinary methods, you know, areas of inquiry, um, from anthropology to, uh, to natural sciences, right? So a huge range of anthropology to zoology, if you will, something like that. Within the uh, graduate school of design, there are those that do specialize in technical adaptation relating to um, buildings and engineering, which is somewhat removed from the way you and I, and I think, uh, conceptualize adaptation. Um, so in a way, I, I am a bit of a lone wolf in terms of integrating climate change within the built environment as, a, as a, uh, a, an area of academic teaching and research. But it, it isn't to say that there aren't many others coming behind me. And I think what it reflects in many ways is the relative immaturity of an academy to support a, a slew of PhDs that, um, you know, have defensible philosophies and, and research positions. Um, that are coming slowly but surely making their way uh, into um, you know, higher education research institutes. So it's not that I'm a lone wolf in the sense that um, I don't have a, an academy. It's just that it's taking time um, for it to manifest itself uh, within more conventional domains of knowledge. So I guess it was one, one of my next questions is that I've heard of adaptation programs and I actually talked to a previous guest from the University of Maryland. They have a public policy program that they do climate change and it seems like a lot of emphasis on mitigation, but there is some adaptation. But are there any universities known for adaptation? So you think of like University of Chicago, economics, Stanford law, Columbia journalism, and then of course Harvard, it's almost everything. But are there any schools that are just like, okay, they got it down when it comes to adaptation or as you saying, it's just, it's too new of a field. Yeah, there, there is no, um, not in the United States. Um, there is, there are really no schools that, that have a, a, a consolidated curriculum that covers the basis. The closest you're going to get is the climate and society uh, program at Columbia. Uh, I believe that's t- technically within the Earth Institute. That, you know, it's, it's as close as I think you're going to get in the United States to having a fairly well-rounded curriculum. Um, but what that your question really speaks to is what is, you know, if there is a study and a set of associated analytical skills behind adaptation, as you reference it, what is the actual practice of adaptation? And that's a deeper conversation to have a question. So you have students in the program, and they're, you've mentioned that they're taking some of your courses but are, what sort of programs are they sort of graduating if this is a graduate program, but what is their graduate degree in? And it's just adaptation yeah, so is just the, one course. Sure. So they're coming from architecture, urban design, urban planning, landscape, masters of design, engineering, uh, and, and advanced research degrees. And so they're, they're taking this coursework and contextualizing it generally within uh, other applied environmental sciences, you know, from human dimension to uh, environmental engineering. Okay, so at this stage, I don't generally like to start with your background, but I think it would be useful. So here, you're a professor at Harvard, but you've had sort of a, you've been around, so to speak. And I'm just wondering if you could kind of walk us through that, because I think that's interesting, at least from what I've seen. I mean, you, you start, you were working in Florida doing real estate law. Is that accurate? Yeah, so I, I, um, like a, a number of your guests to the University of Georgia for undergraduate studies. And I grew up in Albany, Georgia, the deep south, and wow. I was an environmentalist, and I, you know, even before I got to UGA, I 
pretty familiar with Eugene Odom and his impact in conservation and ecology and, and the sort of economics of land management. And, you know, so, you know, at EGA, I got to be there at the tail end of his tremendous sort of global impact intellectually. And then, you know, for me, a reference. So then I went to law school because my reference point for having impact was advocacy and, and environmental advocacy. But coming out of, you know, law school, you know, at the end of the Clinton administration and the Bush administration, where, you know, I saw in practicing mostly toxics, uh, you know, engage in toxics, environmental justice, um, a, a range of environmental topics and and points of contention that were being completely, I saw people's entire careers being completely overturned by administrative and authority of, of, of presidential authority. Hmm. So I, I re-referenced my notion of environmentalism within the built environment because in particularly living in, in Georgia and in, in Atlanta, um, you know, seeing the, the, the tremendous negative impact on suburbanization, urban planning, you know, a lack of, a forethought relating to mobility, transportation, housing, etc. I I really reference environmentalism within the context of the built environment. So, you know, I, I transitioned my practice into uh, housing and uh, real estate, and I taught housing at the University of Miami and housing studies, and that actually led me into um, po- into disaster planning and post-disaster planning. Like a, a lot of people who end up in climate change. Yeah, come at it via risk mitigation, via resilience, via adaptation. And uh, uh, along that very precise uh, sort of timeline. And so for me, it was somewhat circumstantial, but it was all interconnected within my broader sort of ecological framework of, of the world. And, uh, and as I particularly got into uh, working and studying and researching and teaching uh, post-disaster housing and management in a way, I, I really started to understand vulnerabilities, vulnerability assessments. I started to really see, particularly around the world, where, you know, these disasters were um, uh, ostensibly the nomenclature of natural disasters, but they were really human disasters. And their underlying vulnerabilities were functions of human institutions, laws and rules and economics that were um, being uh, exacerbated um, by what people were attributing in some manner to either environmental degradation or climate change. Now, the attribution part of it, uh, you know, it's a whole other story, but for me, I started to really understand um, the impact on the human condition, and specifically shelter and housing, which is a, a basic fundamental, some people would say right, others would say critical necessity of the human condition, which is housing. And so um, that was my entry point you know, into further um, uh, PhD studies in applied climate science. Well, it must be a lonely field, but I'm obviously not in that sort of orbit, but you're an academic and you're writing articles and it's it's the published literature. And so the folks that I've dealt with, it, there's a lot of applied aspects to what they're doing. And, you know, quite honestly, there's people aren't stepping back and really doing that sort of deep thinking on how we really should approach this. I mean, there's a lot of great work going on there, but, you know, some of the things that you've shared with me, it's like, wow, okay, you're really dissecting this issue, really taking it apart. And so do you feel like there's a pretty robust, I mean, you've mentioned that the U.S. is behind, but are you, are you still going to conferences and is it a field that's growing in the right way? Um, yes and no. You know, it, as an academic proposition, the field is certainly maturing. Uh, I, I co-chaired Walter Leal um, this summer 
uh, at Columbia, uh, the North American Symposium on Climate Change Adaptation, we have a, a forthcoming book on it, um, that really cataloged the research that was happening from, you know, the Arctic to the Caribbean. And, you know, the research was happening. It, you know, it still has its own very clear disciplinary methodological basis and, and, and a wide variety of, of fields. And, and, and sometimes it's dif- difficult to synthesize you know, the, the fundamental knowledge that's coming out of that. And, and there are still some serious gaps in conceptual thinking and basic definitions relating to resilience uh, and adaptation, uh, which is one of my sort of core missions in life and, and to bring, you know, some order to. But that being said, that level of experimentation and it, it is just par for the course in terms of getting it right, getting it wrong, and really critiquing uh, where the empirical and the theoretical research starts to intersect in very practical terms. And for me, I have the benefit of um, wearing multiple hats. So I, I wear a hat as an academic. I wear a hat in public service to a variety of different positions uh, related to federal government. And I wear a hat in professional practice. And I think having having connections along those and compl- complicated ethical and and uh, conflict of interest associated with that, but they're, they're paramount to the notion and identification of truth, as you can imagine. But it does keep me connected with, you know, the necessity to ground the theory and the academic foundations um, to, you know, what is really most uh, reasonably applicable. Uh, you know, what is the underlying sort of heuristical foundation way for actually um, affecting change? And having a positive impact on how we analyze uh, and promote change, um, because you know one of the big major challenges has been that we conceptualize uh, adaptation resilience as absolute goods, right? Uh, and we have not intellectually come to terms with the underlying subjectivity of adaptation and resilience to the extent that one person's adaptation is another person's uh, maladaptation, or one person's resilience may be another person's maladaptation. And that runs across scales, that runs across actors, that runs across time dimensions. And uh, I'll give you an example. Bloomberg, which and uh, I think it's Christopher Flavelle, I, I know I'm botching his name. He reports for Bloomberg, uh, one of the, I think, top climate journalists out there, was, uh, was reporting earlier today or retweeting or something that came to his channel that um, Donald Trump was in Miami. And Donald Trump in Miami today said that he was going to take all the billions of dollars that we were going to spend uh, um, in climate mitigation. Of course, that's an accounting proposition. Uh, who knows what he's talking about? Right. So it, has, it has no real foundation reality there. But that he was going to take the billions of dollars for climate mitigation and he was going to apply that to Miami to save Miami. Right? So, there is a good example where you have a resource allocation relating to the adaptation fund um, that is maladaptive to everybody else in the world, right? And so that level of critical analysis relate, and there are objective applications in adaptation science, but it's not always so clear cut to the variety of actors and people that are out there having to make real world decisions that have psychocognitive biases and all types of other preferences about how the world should be divided and how we should allocate limited resources in favor of um, preservation and in favor of change. 
Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of your external roles. So you're, I don't know if you're currently serving as the vice chair of the U.S. Community Resilience Panel, but you did. Are you still doing that? Yep, yeah, we are um, very much actively engaged. Um, it's uh, um, chartered under the White House Adaptation Climate Adaptation Plan, um, supported by the National Institute of Standards and Technology in partnership with uh, NOAA and EPA and a variety of other uh, DHS and a variety of other uh, federal agencies. Um, and our challenge is to look across the built environment and infrastructure systems. And this is quite broad range from water, energy, um, social service, economics, a wide variety of uh, areas of uh, inquiry and, and relationship, systematic relationship, and really flesh out um, where are the standards, where are um, the conventions, where are the best practices, where are the analytical tools, and really bring order to this notion of um, community resilience. Now, it's somewhat conflicting in, in many ways because resilience, you know, is about, is fundamentally about the elasticity of the operations of the status quo. So there's a huge status quo bias in, in resilience. Now, public policy by virtue of Presidential Directive 21 and other, let's say, other philanthropic notions of resilience and interpretations that are somewhat uniquely American have conflated resilience and adaptation, unfortunately. And so, in many ways, the federal government has this very interesting divide. And I'm speaking now not, and I'm speaking entirely today in my academic capacity and not one as vice chair of the panel. But, but, you know, the federal government has had some interesting developments relating to this division. You know, so if adaptation is about fundamentally about the capacity for transformational change. There's actually much more precise technical definitions and heuristical definitions associated with that. But I think it's a sort of basic uh, denomination or is that. Um, So if you think about, you know, if you think about the risk mitigation functions and the preservation functions and the conservation functions associated with resilience, adaptation really challenges that in the sense that um, resilience, you know, having an adaptive capacity and having uh, may include elements of resilience somewhere in your system. Right? In that sense, resilience is actually part of adaptation science. But they have both conflicting and synergistic relationships. And the, in fact, they're both point and counterpoint. Um, and they very much operate uh, in, in two very different worlds in very practical terms. Uh, and there's a lot of examples where uh, our um, things that we're doing as a matter of public policy in the United States are, are, are done in the name of resilience that are leading to maladaptation. And uh, and in many ways, resilience is, is potentially quite dangerous. Now, it's very effective in terms of issue identification, mobilization, really drawing the connections between social engagement, social vulnerability, and environment. And, and there's many, many positive things by which resilience has been framed. But that vagueness, in a way, and that lack of technical facility, which computer science, ecology, engineering, and really most of the the intellectual disciplinary domains of knowledge in the world have not gone that route of conflating resilience and adaptation. And so, when you look at it from the federal government's point of view, it's very interesting because you have, you know, you have folks within the EPA, NASA, even within NIST a little bit. Uh, and other, let's say, science-based agencies that do draw very clear distinctions between resilience and adaptation in, in analytical terms and in conceptual terms and the like, and, and very also, you know, 
in my case, the built environment, federal facility. They are drawing very clear delineations between what these things mean, particularly in applied terms. And then you have all of these other agencies of the federal government who have no real basis intellectually to support the analytical divisions between resilience and adaptation. At the same time, this is within the context of a, of a Congress and a conservative Republican Congress, which is dominating recent years, that sees adaptation as some sort of conspiratorial transformation that's linked to immigration and the UN and all of these things that really have no basis in truth and is actually open to this idea of resilience. And in many ways, that's completely ideologically consistent because to be a conservative is to believe in the conservation of the status quo, which is actually not quite far off from the technical or at least heuristical meaning of resilience in terms of the elastic function of the status quo. And so, you know, and of course the big challenge there is if you do nothing but promote resilience, you never fundamentally challenge the underlying rules and institutions that define your vulnerability in the first place. And there is empirical research from anthropology to zoology. I know that sounds more generic and ridiculous to say that from A to Z, but there is a tremendous amount of, of research out there that, that brings that point home over and over again. Yet what has happened uh, is that, you know, resilience becomes this popular nomenclature of philanthropy and of, uh, of certain agencies of the federal government that say, Hey, you know, this is a mechanism for us to squeak out some additional congressional allocations because we think it'll fly to a Republican conservative Congress. And then you have other agencies that which have held firm to these very clear divisions, the EPA in particular, uh, which has had made clear distinctions. And that is in contradiction. You know, I'm again thinking in a scholarly, have my scholarly hat on here. That is in contradiction to some unresolved notions of public policy all the way up to the White House where you have People in CEQ and you know science, technology, and all of these administrative heads that have both resilience and adaptation people. So rightfully so, the White House makes the organizational. They have the organizational structure. They have the right people that are making the decisions. But it, it, it's not completely consistent with where the policy has been. And I think that what that represents is it's a political negotiation. And maybe that's a good thing, right? In terms of issue identification in terms of uh, of engaging as many people as they can in this notion of climate vulnerability and climate change. And so I'm not passing judgment on that. But what I think going forward, if you're talking about where most of the action is happening, which is arguably very localized and very much oriented, particularly in my realm of the built environment, at a lot, lot, district, community, city scale, then the analytical capacities, which are very much reliant on top-down federal support, uh, have to draw these distinctions between, in analytical and conceptual terms, between resilience and adaptation. Um, It's just critically important. And I think the White House has the right people. The federal government has the right people that draw these distinctions. And I think with time, we will start to see the policies start to draw, you know, a consistent, draw some measure of consistency um, with where our, our level of expertise uh, is. Okay, we fully pivoted to this whole discussion of adaptation resilience. And uh, just so people know, uh, Jesse shared quite a bit of the, the work that he's produced. And, you know, I'm going to just say say it, Jesse. I, I felt like I was back in graduate school. It's been 20 years, and I, sit, I was reading these journal articles and just these dense things, incredible things, and I was 
constantly taking notes and stuff. But man, I had to do my homework for this episode. I just want you to know. Um, but there was a lot of great material. And I think, and correct me when I'm referencing the wrong article, but some very provocative things too. But what I thought was interesting in this whole idea of the federal government emphasizing resilience, uh, you, you know that, you know, even our response to 911, the, the language of resilience and the idea of these communities being resilient in the face of even terrorism, did that sort of like integrate itself and, you know, it was a, some continuity into how we're doing adaptation. Did I read that right? Or that's where the implication you were making? Yeah, and that's not my work. That's, that's a citation to the work of others who have, you know, made this observation that part of that, and, and my interpretation of that set of observations about the relationship to 9-11 and resilience, it certainly plays out in, in, in a couple fronts. But my observation for the interpretation of that is that what we have done is we have taken the issue of climate change and we, for better or for worse, Often there's a lot of friction here. We've taken climate change and the associated problems with that, and we've tried to cram it within the institutions of emergency management and emergency response that way. And that is a huge disconnect along time horizons, along vulnerabilities, along modes of action and agency. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why that's problematic. There's a lot of reasons why it's a good thing, particularly relating to extreme weather and shifting the pivot to planning as opposed to sort of de facto response. Uh, mechanisms within emergency planning, and I think many people, uh, even at FEMA, would internally agree. Uh, one of my other uh, responsibilities is built environment editor of U.S. Climate Resilience Toolkit, and we were publishing something on emergency management that was that was done by uh, written by FEMA, and it was somewhat critical, of, or it was evaluating FEMA's own internal pivot to planning and engaging climate change and vulnerabilities. That was really totally different from the way I think many of us, even internally within FEMA, had conceptualized their role as really a disaster response agency. And, you know, somewhere somewhere along the line, someone said, oh, we can't publish this. You know, it's too critical of FEMA. I was like, well, it turned out FEMA wrote this, right? <laughs> and it, it actually represents uh, what I think is a very positive sea change at FEMA. Um, so there are good things, right? That's, that's a positive, but the negative side of cramming climate change down the throats of emergency managers is that they're not, you know, seeing the big picture and they're really looking towards, um, you know, uh, irregular events as opposed to many of the incremental aspects um, that are difficult to monitor or to evaluate, have some mode of intelligence on, uh, relating to decisions, particularly economic decisions, which have implications over over decades. Do you think the federal government is going to get to the point or even have you heard these conversations of that some communities, some cities simply are not going to be able, to, you know, I hate to use the term this way, that resilient in the face of climate change. And so you're very familiar with Miami and, you know, you even think of the geology of Miami that you build a seawall. It's just going to come underneath it. Are you going to have to abandon Miami? And what does that mean for resilience planning over the next 30, 50 years and versus something like Chicago, which might be a little bit easier to do that kind of planning? I mean, do you, were you encountering those sort of conversations? Well, I, you know, I'm not in a position to speak as to a sort of voice of or a consistent voice, if you will. Or, you know, I, there has been a lot of inconsistency about places like Miami. And in, in fact, there's a lot of ambition to engage Miami. And I, so I, I can't really speak as to a consistent sort of momentum one way or the other. But what I can say is that, you know, from my own interpretation, 
And, you know, and we're actually at, at Harvard and engaged formally with the city of Miami Beach and looking at this. You know, if, if one really looks at the confidence intervals and looks at, you know, the associated probabilities and associated uncertainties as well, ignorance associated with sea level rise, you know, at best, the transition from resilience planning to adaptation planning um, can be contextualized to something of hospice care, um, that all one is really doing is buying time. Um, and that's primarily, you know, the case for most of South Florida, uh, at least from up to Palm Beach. So, you know, and that has a tremendous value, right? I mean, if it is about resilience and it is about sheltering that tremendous sort of incremental midterm burden on the most vulnerable, the most poor, Miami is a very, very poor place. The divide between rich and poor in Miami is tremendous. Um, then, you know, resilience is very important because that transition to um, what will be population migration, inevitably. And you saw it after Hurricane Andrew. Think of all the people that left South Dade after Hurricane Andrew. It's not, you know, an impossibility to think that tens of thousands of people at incremental notions of events, you know, whether you know, storms or whether it's just sea level rise and rainy day flooding and nuisance flooding, tax burden, you know, tax base, bonding capacity, whatever that is, you know, there's cases now where there's people that aren't, you know, they're losing car insurance. Car insurance carriers are dropping people because of uh, the impact that's having on you know, what they're insuring. And so there's a lot of momentum, right, and a lot of stress. And we already have a lot of stress, aging society, economic inequality, environmental degradation, you know, in Florida, and water quality, and the whole thing. So there's all this stress, and you have to add climate change to it. You know, the long-term thing is that you can't build your way. There is no buildable solution. All you can really do is provide palliative care and help ease that transition for the most vulnerable. But along the way, there will be billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars of lost capital and how we re, you know, how we move communities and how we you know, stitch together some continuity, only time can tell. But, um, you know, my, my, my viewpoint in, in over a hundred years is, uh, and this is my own interpretation, not that of others, is really quite bleak. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't have a lot of work to do in Miami and a tremendous um, responsibility and ethic for really helping uh, ease that transition, you know. So at the end of the day, uh, are we going to be designing buildings that have a type of paint that when the paint is inundated from sea level rise, isn't going to cause greater toxicity to hmm. a, a new type of environment, right? So it works at a lot of different scales, uh, both in natural, human, and urban ecology. Well, it's probably very premature, but just a look at building design, and you, you mentioned paint, and have you seen even people that are developing products with that in mind and are you seeing innovative adaptation marketing in that respect? Do you, do you know of any examples like that? No, not, not really, not at a sort of material basis. Um, what is happening uh, relates primarily to elevation uh, and first floor, you know, basically buildings are being designed and they're, you know, relative to coastal construction zone management act and other higher building code standards relating to serves and the associated forces with that, you know, the first, the ground plane in many ways is being designed to be totally sacrificial, not just to extreme events, but to sort of this incremental notion of, of more regularized flooding. In that sense, you know, mechanical systems, the, the whole flow of, of user engagement with buildings uh, in terms of ingress, egress, you know, even lawful ingress, egress, 
um, are being really, really moved up, right? So the whole concept of, of the ground plane, we, we recognize it as an urban mode of analysis and experience is being challenged um, because the ground plane is, is, is threatened by water. And, um, you know, it, are we designing for a water world? No, no, it's not quite there yet. But um, uh, by virtue of you know, dependency on infrastructural systems. But uh, there are small things that are happening. And the, the leadership in Miami Beach is really quite progressive and very much engaged in trying to do work within their limit, you know, their limited political and economic capacity to do what they can um, to see that planning and building codes and architectural responses um, work, you know, synergistically to to mitigate risk. Uh, but at some point in time, you know, those investments decades from now will represent a certain declining marginal utility in the sense that at some point in time they won't it won't make a lot of economic sense to invest there. Well, it, it leads to this thing that I've uh, and, and Bloomberg reported on this uh, actually this week. Um, something that I've been working on in an empirical sort of academic sense, which is climate gentrification. Um, because as these areas, and Miami is actually a classic example for it, um, you know, the higher ground in Miami, uh, you know, further from the beach, uh, less desirable, generally poorer, you know, the land price is lower, poorer populations have lived there historically, uh, also very tight-knit communities. Um, those areas are being priced out because of land speculation and the speculative land prices uh, associated with redevelopment in higher areas of Miami-Dade County are slowly but surely uh, leading to climate gentrification. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing it at a very localized scale. It's difficult to fully capture empirically or statistically or those econometrics. Um, but we know it's happening and, and it will likely expand at much larger scales uh, across uh, the East Coast of the United States as well as you know, areas, well, other vulnerable areas uh, in the North Pacific uh, coast as well. So there's a lot of interactions here and a lot of complexity to it. Well, that term you used, and it was part of a, a paper that I read that was linked, and I, you're quoted in, in the whole concept of climate gentrification. Very interesting. And is it actually being used in, I guess, a more formal way, or is this like as you just sort of describing a situation? Uh, no, it, it doesn't really have a scholarly basis right now in terms of uh, its you know, descriptive you know, framing. Uh, but I, you know, I have published work on it and will continue to publish um, more work as I, as I, you know, fully flesh out um, what it means and what it's fully describing. Um, there's obviously a tremendous body of work in gentrification and, and social science and in urban planning, uh, but this represents a, a, a unique phenomenon because, you know, I, I always draw the distinction or the parallel to the notion of redlining. And redlining was a, a, a mode of segregation based on uh, ethnic or cultural or racial bias in the United States um, that was very systematic, right? And it, it drew a lot of divisions uh, in the built environment and, and worked, uh, and then repercussions that we feel today. And I think what is interesting is that there's a parallel concept, of, and, and maybe it's just all in the nomenclature, but I think it represents a, a potential challenge is the notion of blue lining, that, you know, in parallel to climate gentrification, there will be zones, and, and Florida legally has what are called adaptation uh, area, zones of adaptation area or something like that. that. Legally, you can have an adaptation district, right? So as you start to plan and you start to understand vulnerability and risk assessment, 
you know, there are will be these boundaries. There will people will draw blue lines about where water is and where water is not, and that will you know further institutionalize um, segregation and division of resources and people. Um, what even even if it's most well intended to preserve you know the economic investment of households, the, the, there are always you know implications here that are under unrecognized, and so that's a that's another area of perhaps urban or land economics um, that really I think. Um, is more or less theoretical at this point, but I believe we will likely see parallel uh, parallel phenomenon um, that that represents something like blue lining here sooner than later. Just wanted to get your opinion on some of the the other additional articles that you've written. In the one that really stood out for me is from I'm just going to read the title. Help help reference for you is from sustainability to adaptation goldman sachs corporate real estate strategy now that might not sound exciting but to me what sort of stood out is like here's goldman sachs is you know starting to think about these issues and you know are they really thinking about climate change or is it really kind of a more narrow focus as they kind of get their heads around this i'm just curious if you kind of explain what that paper is all about yeah so i'm from one perspective that paper for me was about resolving adaptation in the business literature and in the, uh, you know, the adaptation socio-ecological literature because you have two bodies of knowledge that shared a tremendous amount of, had a tremendous relational relationship. Um, but no one had really ever sort of tried to synthesize that and, and, and try to understand, uh, the parallels intellectually. I felt like I perhaps accomplished that in the, in the paper. Um, but what I was doing was setting up a framework for adaptation in its relationship to uh, resilience and its relationship to sustainability. Now, in popular terms, I don't know how many conferences I've been speaking at where someone's you know, raised their hand. They're like, you know, is resilience the new sustainability, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, the popular discourse is, you know, people are just confused in many ways. We haven't done a great job at, at explaining this level of conceptual complexity. But at the same time, you know, in, in, in a variety of, well, there's a lot of literature on this, that, you know, there is a relationship between adaptation and, 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 and resilience, but I'm just going to speak in terms of adaptation, to sustainability. Because, you know, there are winners and losers, and there's a transactional cost associated with adaptation. And, and to really, you know, in, in adaptation and resilience, not only are they somewhat have objective subjective divides, they're processes, they're not outcomes. So to say that I'm adapted or I'm resilient is, is, is inconsistent. So um, it is and it isn't, it depends on what context, but it's largely inconsistent. And so what sustainability, you need a level of sustained resource allocation to promote adaptation. Of course, many theorists have said, well, adaptation and sustainability are completely inconsistent because sustainability, you know, if you look at, think about adaptation, you go back to the adaptive cycle in ecology, basically theorists have said, well, sustainability is about the sustained growth part of the cycle and that the laws of thermodynamics dictate that perpetual sustainability is an impossibility. Admittedly, that's true. And I think in theoretical terms, there is a conflict between sustainability and adaptation, but in practical terms, you need some sustained level of resource allocation to promote adaptation. So I wanted to look in the case of Goldman Sachs, who is as, as smart as any other institutional organization in the world. One, we knew that they were engaged in, in risk management, but what was their 
what was their understanding of adaptation? And I didn't quite get into that because um, I really focused on the building and built environment side. And I'll come back to that, what that means in a second. But it was also important for me to resolve this literature between the business academy and the, and the socio-ecological academies in the sense that um, we often talk about adaptation as a function of risk management and loss. But there are benefits to adaptation, right? So you have to look at both, you know, the, the costs and the benefits. And, and too much of our discourse is in the negative. It's all about, you know, adapting to prevent. And it's responsive and, and it's about, you know, loss. Our whole mental state emotionally is oriented towards loss. When in fact, there's many aspects of adaptation that, uh, offer tremendous human and ecological uh, and natural system benefits. And you can challenge that in historical terms and empirical terms, but, you know, you have to acknowledge both sides of the coin. And so from uh, what I did with that was a, was a multi-year case study looking at how Goldman Sachs designed real estate and facilities and architecture and planning and the spatial and operational end of Goldman Sachs. And what I saw was that there were aspects of sustainability that had the intent of sustainability. Um, that were actually promoting the adaptive capacity of the firm to respond to certain crises. You know, and, and what actually one of my original, one of my original uh, sort of impetus to do this research was there's this wonderful picture published by Reuters after Hurricane Sandy where all of lower Manhattan has its lights out except for Goldman Sachs, which has its lights on. And I was like, how in the world is all of lower Manhattan have no power? I mean, all of the institutions of lower Manhattan has no power, but Goldman Sachs still has the lights on. And what I found was that this sustainability as an organizational change management planning exercise actually promoted the adaptive capacity of, of the firm um, to, in not just physical operational terms, but in, in terms of business strategy and horizon. And I think that's a powerful case study and a powerful set of synthesis of literatures um, that help us start to make the business case for adaptation. It's admittedly limited to, you know, a case study, and um, but I think it's a very important reference point going forward for how we make the business case for why we should adapt. Well, I sort of want to, you know, end the podcast maybe on a, a discussion. I'm not even sure how comfortable you are talking about it, but, you know, did you see the movie The Big Short? Yes, yes. It took me, you know, I've seen it twice and it only the, after the second time did I really start getting like, okay, what did they really do here? And, you know, I think uh-huh, of Go- uh-huh. Goldman Sachs and how could the corporate powers that be really start to profit off adaptation? And you think of real estate, mm-hmm. you think of land values. Sure. And is there a way that they're going to profit in such a speculative way, but at the end of the day, maybe we're benefiting from that speculation. So they're valuing some future value of this landscape being at particular parcels of land, and they're able to generate income from it, or you know, even conservationists could benefit from like, okay, we're going to do investment here. I mean, are you are you hearing this sort of conversation, or can you even speculate how adaptation probably will encourage a lot of those kind of shenanigans because it deals with uncertainty. Yeah, great question. So what you highlighting the future is kind of the, the pivot point here. You know, it's about the future perfect cost of capital. It's what I would have otherwise spent had I not invested in some mode of adaptation or mitigation or resilience, if you may go down those lines. And so there are mechanisms that in insurance and in risk management that speak to that. You know, if you look at what the big short was getting at, 
it was a complete deterritorialization of capital in favor of a level of instrumentation of the derivatives market, for instance, that had a total misunderstanding of statistics, right? They didn't understand their tail risk. They didn't measure their tail risk, and they didn't properly understand the associated uncertainties with with cycles and the, the specifically the correlations between the broader economy and uh, the housing economy. And, you know, we're in a exact same position. We have some probability curve about heat, sea level rise, and any number of environmental impacts. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what the, or I should say environmental phenomenon, but there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what those impacts will be. Um, so, yes, there is absolutely, um, as with any notion of capitalism, um, room for exploitation. The question is, to what extent can we harness, and listen, I'm quite familiar and sympathetic and, and in many ways amplified many of the sort of critiques of neoliberalism that are associated with this, but I also have to be practical, which is to what extent can we regulate markets and create bounded markets with rules that allow some measure of investment uh, where there are co-benefits to, uh, to, to the collective. And that is the challenge that we have. Um, how do we create um, and, and stimulate and incentivize these markets um, so that we have a uh, collective benefit? And, and that doesn't mean that private people and entities and organizations won't have a return. They won't make a profit. They should. That incentivizes them to take risk-taking. Um, and, and certainly you can't rely on the private market by itself. But if you look at the scale of climate change, particularly within the built environment, there is no, the public sector can't do it alone. You know, it has to be a combination of public and private. What those relationships are is yet to be determined. Certainly in the history of the United States, there's not a, a tremendously positive, you know, the track record for public-private partnerships is admittedly not all that great. But we have to, moving forward, um, critically think as a matter of policy. Um, um, who benefits and who and who um, pays? And right now, every aspect of adaptation, there's a tremendous disconnect between who pays and invests and who benefits. Well, and I and I guess what I'm getting as I, I what what's the term they were using the big shorts? Like they literally created some sort of it's an economic device kind of out of thin air. What was the expression like? They, it was a tool or uh, but anyway, they 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 Goldman Sachs or whatever the firm literally created this process for that investor, and I, I didn't realize you had that flexibility. And you look at I guess like more of a crude analysis, and I'm saying crude, that's not probably very fair, but like the Stern report talking about the future climate impacts, what the costs are going to be. Now, at what point could we get comfortable today to sort of say, all right, we believe that the costs are going to be that high. How can we generate some revenue today, uh, that reflects the worry about that future, um, cost? And, you know, could we create some mechanisms that would help people kind of invest today? And I, I don't think we're there yet. I guess people aren't confident with the models, but it would be encouraging if, if we got more confident to do those things. Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, with Goldman Sachs, there was a number of people in, in banks that were engaged on both sides of the trade, right? That's just how capital economies work. You're, you're not betting against one party or the other, you're taking both positions, and how you negotiate that is a time-sensitive function. But I think what you're hitting at is, you know, what are these products, what are these instruments? You know, we have parametric insurance, we have a lot of emerging insurance products, 
Um, you know, if you talk, look, go back and look at the history of cooperatives and cooperative investment. There's a tremendous potential there. Um, they, we will have to aggregate capital in new ways and there will have to be new relationships between, you know, ecologies of people and, and natural systems and biophysical systems that, um, where, you know, monetary and non-monetary capital, uh, is negotiated in, in highly novel and innovative ways. Um, will complex derivatives, you know, that have some empirical foundation relating to probability and, and, you know, managed uncertainty have a foundation in the capital markets? Yeah. And that's already happening. Um, the question is, how does that, you know, what, to what extent is that scalable, uh, across a universal geography? It's a universal notion of, of, of risk in a way relating to the totalizing impacts of climate change. So that's the challenge. And, and I think that, you know, it ends up being more localized. It isn't about global capitalism. It ends up being about local capital and local uh, uh, networks uh, and reorganization of capital, financial capital, um, to get this done. Uh, Miami is not, the federal government, you know, and again, speaking with my intellectual you know, capital, uh, my uh, scholarly hat on, you know, the federal government can't afford to, to turn Miami into an island, Miami's going to have to figure it out more or less on its own. It can ease the burden. It can have some measure of palliative care. It can pump the morphine. Um, but, you know, real estate sector in particular and infrastructure sector is going to have to deal with this one way or the other. Well, I don't want to get too deep into it, but in a previous life, I spent quite a bit of time thinking about how do you create valuation for adaptation ecosystem services and you know very simply let me explain it you know i actually was at a, a ecosystem service conference trying to do this i had a panel together and it's okay let's say you take a landscape and it's it's a forested landscape and you know with conservation easements there's quite a rich history in how you're valuing valuating the environmental services maybe water quality air quality so could you put a present day value on the adaptation value of that landscape even though today it's not serving that value. So um, this is a very simple example, but let's say you have a big giant plot of land that let's in Florida, but it's not serving that role now, but in the future, it's going to be a migratory corridor for wildlife because of what we know what's going to happen with sea level rise. Mm -hmm. Could you create some economic model where people are willing to invest in its future adaptation value? And you know, I spent a lot of time on it and I tried to find an economist that might be able to work with me on it. And of course, I'm not an economist. I'm not an environmental economist. So it's, I don't run in those circles, but to me, it seemed like there's there's this desire to find more conservation funding, and why can't we start thinking like that? Because we're, we are placing more faith in these future models for climate change. Let's start using it for conservation and valuing future adaptation services. And I hope that made sense. But I mean, it does, and it gets into uh, again who 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 invests and who bears the benefit. You know, if you're talking about conservation easements, you're talking about more or less tax benefits. Um, so I think under certain and, and, and you know. You know, what that body of work in terms of climate services and the whole thing, great. You know, but it gets into deep uncertainties associated, well, not technical uncertainties, but deep, like, intellectual uncertainties relating, you know, discount rates and, and time horizons of that investment. My, my tendency is to think that on a much shorter term, there's, there's value there that could be accrued, but over the long term, there's too much mathematical uncertainty, um, or conceptual uncertainty about, um, about where, who, where that benefit is, 
is truly distributed and who really accrues and endures to that benefit. Uh, I, I don't know. I, you have to really think that through. And fundamentally, what's the market for it? You know, that's, that's, that's a, you know, if you look at wetlands, you look at wetlands markets, right? You know, that's a type of model. There's an exchange model, but if it's a very localized phenomenon with a very localized impact, it may not have that exchange, the same unitization of exchange function. So it may be worth more or less in different geographies. And so your ability to exchange it may not benefit from broader flows of capital. And that's just the notion of place that is, makes geography and what, you know, and natural systems so unique. In my naive view, I still think there's an opportunity there. And if there are any environmental economists listening to this podcast, please contact me. <laughs> Let's chat. Uh, Jess, I, I, I want to wrap this up, but I, I sort of wanted to do it on, on a lighter note. And I, I was looking at your Twitter feed, and I think you had sent out a notice that you guys went and watched Before the Flood recently. Did you actually get to go and watch it? Yeah, yeah. We did a pre-screening here at the National Geographic Society at Harvard and uh, and had you know, students and faculty uh, listen, you know, watch the movie. And then we had breakout sessions um, between faculty and students to sort of talk it through. And, um, you know, it was sort of funny because they served pizza that had pepperoni and it was like, you know, the lighthearted kind of thing. But then, you know, if you watch the movie, certainly we all recognize the implications of meat eating. You know, it's, it's a, it was an irony that did not go unrecognized. But what it did, it was a good conversation to have because there was, there were strengths and weaknesses of the movie. If only it gets the word out and it increases, you know, creates a popular discourse. But, you know, there's things in there that are open to interpretation, uh, particularly as it relates to attribution um, that, uh, you know, from a scientific point of view are questionable. But from otherwise, it's a great film. And I think uh, people uh, would really enjoy watching. Yeah, I think it's available on online. I've got a while. I haven't actually had a chance to watch it yet. And, you know, I guess I'm going to have this conversation with future guests, but, uh, you know, Leo DiCaprio, that's amazing that he's dedicated his time to this issue and they create these great films. But gosh, it really doesn't get past the echo chamber very often. And, you know, I, maybe it will catch fire with a bigger public, but it's just these very beautiful environmental films that most of the people that watch it are just like you and me. So that's a little frustrating. Yeah, well, um, you know, there's another series on TV, Living Dangerously or something like this, and it has a bunch of sort of Hollywood stars, you know, out there sort of engaged in, in, in really difficult conversations because, you know, there is no clear answer. And, that, and this is, you know, one thing, if, so if you're talking about sort of popular communication, right, you know, it's one, you know, climate mitigation is fairly clear cut in a sense, right? Stop using fossil fuel, carbon, methane, GHG, you know, right? It's really binary in a way. In reality, perhaps not, but in popular understandings, it is. But with adaptation, it, it's not so clear cut as to what that outcome could or should be. Um, and the, the subjectivity of where we end up is um, very much biased by the existing powers that be. And it will leave people, and some people will benefit and others will not. And I, I hate to be such a Debbie Downer on that note, but it, you know, this, notion of, you know, I'm waiting for more climate change fiction. I'm waiting for uh, a broader engagement with the humanities of climate change uh, and art. And that's certainly happening in Paris. Like last December is a tremendous amount of art. I mean, it's happening. It's slowly bubbling up. And I think as we sort of, you know, totalize our engagement um, in, in culture, in cultural terms and in popular terms, um, I think we will start to understand the uh, 
our 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 mode of agency in, in creating and creating problems and, and hopefully solving. Well, and so I just sort of want to end. Um, what's next for you? Are are you appearing anywhere? Any conferences or any papers that you want to sort of mention that are coming out? Um, what? Yeah, what's next? Uh, well, two things. Uh, the North American uh, adaptation a book uh, is coming out on Springer. That should be out in SIP uh, in Dece- uh, January rather, um, and also in January. I'm very excited about this. We have um, the book uh, Blue Dunes: Climate Change by Design. Uh, which is being published by Columbia Un- and distributed by Columbia University Press. And um, this is a book uh, based on a project, uh, a very controversial project uh, from the Rebuild by Design competition that came out of Hurricane Sandy about building uh, barrier islands off the coast and having uh, windmill farms out there. And it looked, and basically it's a story of the team of scientists and engineers and economists and actuarialists and a team of people that got together from very different disciplines and tried to address risk mitigation, resilience, and adaptation at a regional scale, and to try to think big and try to think, you know, space program. How can we have, utilize industrial mobilization, but at the same time have ecological sensitivity to how we understand conservation and the like? And um, and so this book sort of narrates those frictions and those challenges, both as a sort of intellectual proposition, but in terms of a, a design and normative proposition. And um, it's a beautifully Yeju Choi, uh, my co-editor, uh, is uh, Claire Weiss from the firm WXY. Yeju Choi uh, uh, designed it from Yale. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book, and I'm very excited to, uh, to finally, after all of these years, to uh, get it out there. Because it's, it's a very honest conversation. Well, I hope it's honest, because it's honest from my perspective in terms of where resilience and adaptation, where those frictions and synergies are. And how you connect um, the built and built and natural environments under a, a variety of different disciplinary ecological frameworks. So it's a, it's about the process. It's not about the result. Of course, these things were never built, but um, um, it's very high profile. Um, and and uh, you know, Rolling Stone. Our quote on the back. You know, Rolling Stone says it's the most uh, innovative project to protect New York or something like that. It's sort of ridiculous in a way, but it, it, it represents a really amazing process. So Blue Dunes, Climate Change by Design, Columbia University, University Press uh, comes out in January with myself and uh, Claire Weiss, is, uh, the editors of the book. So a quick uh, uh, selfless, uh, I should say, uh, selfish pitch for my commercial product. <laughs> well, your commercial product has many uses, and uh, early congratulations for that. And yes, I'm just please follow up with me, and I definitely would have put a plug in for the book when it when it comes out. So that's exciting. Well, on that note, so Jesse, this has been a great conversation, and I had a lot of notes for this conversation. And you know, to be honest, I just scratched the surface. the The papers that you've written um, are provocative in some ways, very interesting, and I think the folks out there that are interested on how resilience is sort of kind of coming uh into society and then what adaptation means to that they they would learn a lot i've shared a couple of your papers with my own colleagues and because i i honestly feel like in the natural resource universe we've been thinking about it but it's more like waving our hands oh this is a problem and it's really nice to see an academic put some real thought into the topic so thank you for that really appreciate it but um any any final thoughts before we uh um, check out yeah, no, I mean, keep up the good work and the extent to which you can uh, have future guests that, you know, touch all the different aspects of uh, at least the human aspects 
of um, the built natural environments, which I think they're already doing, is 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 tremendous. You know, there's people in public health, there's people in transportation, there's people in every facet of society uh, that are that are fundamentally engaged in this, and they all have um, very different perspectives. And I think the value of what American Adapts bring uh, brings is um, is that range of perspectives, because I think through that fog there are some consistencies. Uh, uh, that are consistent challenges that we all have to address, and that's 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 the value that, uh, that it makes it a privilege to join you here today. Well, and if you end up using it at all in next semester's class, please let me know. And if positive or negative feedback, I'd be curious if that if that happens. So, yeah, we'll do. Um, all right, everyone, thanks again for uh, joining us. And this is America Apps, the climate change podcast. Okay, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Thanks again to Beth Gibbons for coming on and talking about the Adaptation Award. And much thanks to Dr. Jesse Keenan from Harvard University to come on. What a fantastic conversation. I learned so much. I've learned a ton from all the stuff that he shares with me directly. He's a publishing machine, and um, I think the field of adaptation is going to benefit tremendously in the years ahead from the work that he's doing. And I'm definitely going to have Jesse on again, hopefully not too far off. So just a little bit of housekeeping here. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes. Or if you have an Android, I think you can subscribe on Google Play. Or if you use Stitcher, there's different ways to get a podcast. It's not always intuitive. If you are so inclined, please go into iTunes and write a review. It's a little bit tricky, but you go in, you search for America Daps, and you click it on. It says write a review and just log in. Do the stars and write something. I would love to hear some feedback from everyone. So please, if you could take the time, that'd be great. I'm always hearing ideas for guests, and so if you have a great idea, contact me at americadaps at gmail.com. And I also have a Facebook page and a community page. And so just uh, if you find the America Adapts community page, just it'll send me an email and I'll preview to join. We have a bit more intimate conversations on the community page as opposed to stuff I share on Facebook. Also, think about connecting with me on LinkedIn. And, you know, just uh, just give me a holler if you have comments about the show or what people are saying. I'm trying to start a conversation here. There's not a lot of platforms to really talk about adaptation, and I'm trying to appeal to people even outside the field of adaptation. I think when some of the feedback that I'm hearing, I'm doing that, and so I want to hear from more of you. And so, again, thanks for listening. Also, I count on support from listeners like you. There is a PayPal option. Don't be shy. Just go to the website, americadaps.org, and you will find it. It would be much appreciated. Independent podcasters count on their listeners if they're not getting sponsorship, which if you are a foundation or something and you're interested in what I'm doing here, I would love to hear from you. I hope you realize it's a very unique way to get the message out on climate change and adaptation and extend beyond the sort of echo chamber. So, yeah. Give me a ring if you want to talk. And I think that's it. Don't forget, next week I have, it's not always completely accurate, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to go with uh, Sean Martin from the World Wildlife Fund, but there's outside chance I might go with Randy Olson. I have both recorded, just sometimes doing the scheduling and getting things edited. But uh, stick around and listen to those. And so you guys are the best. Thank you so much, and have a great week. <laughs>